Hello again. Welcome to Tell Me. Today's conversation on Tell Me is like triple threat Scorpio Day, me and Bo and Yang. This episode is amazing. We had so much fun. I could be his mommy and I just might try to be. <laughs> she could be my mother. She is my mother. I can't find the certificate, but she raised me basically. We just had so much fun. I don't know what else to say. I hope you enjoy this episode of Tell Me. I loved your episode with Mithya Raman, by the way. That was a really great one. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. I listened to that one, the Patrick one. I think I like did like a nice sampling of all of them. Nice. I feel a lot of compassion for Nithya because obviously you hear in this story, she tells she got elected to city council. She went to Harvard for urban planning. It's right. not like she's not educated in this field. But then she gets elected at the beginning of a pandemic where we have like this massive homelessness crisis. And I really felt for her. And I think people lack a lot of compassion around this homelessness situation. Yeah. And with her, it seems like her experience so far has been like, once you're in power, there's much more nuance to it than than people might expect. There's just a lot of massaging of things, negotiating of things, or working with people who kind of don't have the same interests as you, which seems like so microcosmic of life in some way. Anyway, I found it so wonderful. What a great conversation. Thanks. And hopefully with all of these stories that we're trying to tell here, mm -hmm. hopefully that's what we take away. It's yeah. like, oh, this applies to this and that can apply to that. I agree with you. What Nithya is saying about being in power, you know, it's like people expect that once they get that certain job or once they get to that certain place oh, yeah. that everything's going to be great. Yep. It's going to work out exactly how they thought it would and managing your expectations. And I think it's like such an important lesson. Are you about to segue into my life with I this? I am. I'm going to segue. <laughs> I, I clocked it. I yeah, love it. Because it is applicable in like every single situation. Totally. Like, I want to start at SNL yeah. because when I was reading your bio, like I can't fucking believe you're the first Chinese American to ever star in SNL. Really? I mean, it may sound naive. No, 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 no. That's not naive at all. I honestly can't fucking believe it. And good for you. And oh, thank God for you. So talk about SNL. What's that experience been like? Really interesting. I mean, I really credit it with changing my life in a very obvious way. Like materially, your life changes. The kind of gig that like, you know, there's going to be like a very clear line drawn between before and after it happens. I remember like the day before it was announced that I got moved to the cast. I couldn't sleep the night before, obviously, like walked around Prospect Park in New York and was just like, I better savor these moments before things really change. It's wonderful to work there. It's wonderful. It's really challenging. There's a lot of weird ways to navigate it as... I want to say as someone from my like demographics, but also like with anybody, everybody's on their own weird personal journey there. But with what you're saying about being the first fully Asian cast member or what have you, I feel like anytime someone brings that up, I go, yeah, it is kind of crazy. But I was talking to like B.D. Wong about this, this other Asian actor who's been doing it as long as they've been alive. Yeah. And he just always says, you know, it's this thing where people keep saying that like, oh, why is it taking so long for things to sort of change? in that aspect for Asian people. And he goes, we don't have the educational and developmental cycle, these pathways for like Asian people to get into comedy for that to be an inevitability. Right now, I think a lot of diaspora populations, Asian populations in the US 
I think, are like not aware that this is like a viable thing that you can do. You can get into showbiz and like have it be okay. And it's just as viable as it is to go into something that's more on the rails, like medicine or law or whatever. I think I'm an interesting sort of case study in that maybe. But then I think that's always my answer. It's not this natural thing. It's not like there's a theater camp for like any Asian kid who wants to get into showbiz. Not that that's what it takes, but there's not that structural thing that like gets you there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it completely makes sense. And in my experience with my Asian friends or people in my life, there appears to be a tremendous set of expectations by Asian parents put on their children. And there's this extraordinary bond wanting to please, as most children do, their parents. But there's an insane, admirable amount of respect for pleasing their parents and wanting their parents to be happy, which is so beautiful. Right. But like you said, it could be really stifling in the way that if kids want to do something outside that lane, because that's a very specific brain, right? To be a scientist or a doctor. Uh Where does the self-actualization come from? Does it come from like that thread in your life where you have this piety to your parents or is it from doing something just self-generative that's coming from within, that's something that you genuinely want for yourself. That's why representation and shows like SNL, putting people on TV and giving people opportunities is so important Yeah. so that other Asian parents or other Asian children can see that this is a very normal path. It's a completely an option. Totally. You know, not everybody has to be a doctor to be successful. Mm-hmm. Totally. And like, I have a friend who always says, I wasn't elected to represent any necessarily in showbiz, at least. Mm-hmm. He's a writer, an actor. He's fantastic. His name's Julio Torres. But he goes, I wear that mantle in a decent way, but I don't want to be prescriptive about the way that I am choosing to like develop myself and my point of view or whatever. This is not an elected position, but it is this weird thing of like, you do have to sort of set some model for other people. And that's the fun thing that I negotiate. I think like every day I'm like, okay, well, how much of this is for me? And how much of this is coming from a sense of responsibility for other people, you know? And I feel like This is just something that like a lot of people maybe go through in the public eye, I think. I don't know. Here's what I think about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that ultimately I understand when people say, listen, I don't want to be an example. I don't want to be a role model. I didn't sign up to be a role model. I completely get it. Yeah. But two things remain true. We all are responsible for one another in some way. If you're a human being and you want to be a decent human being, we do have to care about each other yep. in some way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, humanity is not humanity. Yeah. So I do believe without people standing up for one another and not caring about other human beings, then the human race, what else are we? We're just a bunch of money-hungry maniacs smoking and drinking and not giving a fuck. Oof. And then my second point is that whether you want to be a role model or not, uh-huh. if you're in the public eye, Kids see you that way. Right. You know, I learned this lesson a long time ago now. Kids are going to watch the show. Kids are going to see you. Zendaya is a perfect example of she's playing this super controversial character on Euphoria. Right. The show's getting a ton of attention and critical acclaim for its wonderful acting and great music and all of that stuff. And we love Zendaya. And Zendaya is taking the responsibility Mm -hmm. and making the choice to put disclaimers on her Instagram. Right. Because she cares. Yep. And so whether you want to be a role model or not, you are when you're in the public eye. And so then you have a choice. Yep. You have a choice to say, well, I don't really care. I didn't sign up for this. I'm not doing that. Or you could say, I didn't sign up for it, 
but it turns out a lot of people do look up to me. And that's actually really helped me shape my life. Also, having children, for me, when my kids see famous people or what fame means, you know, that's a weird thing to navigate. So for me, I want my kids to see that's not all that I am because that's confusing to little kids. But for all of these young people who watch this show and are so inspired by this show, it's really helped me define how I move forward in my life and what types of things I want to do. That's great. Thank you for outlining that. That's perfect. Because I think this is what I'm trying to negotiate all the time is where do I land there? Like, how do I triangulate this end and this other end? And like, where am I in the middle? Because I think I obviously am in the middle. I don't think I'm at either extreme necessarily where I fully shirk it or I kind of embrace it a little too fully. I feel like there's some nice little Goldilocks middle ground there. But speaking of rays and like little kids watching, I mean, this is like this anecdote I tell all the time is that I would watch it and look at Sandra and go, well, I want to do what she's doing, but I can't tell if it's the acting part or if it's the doctor part. And that was like what kind of confused me for the longest time. I mean, I'm sure Sandra didn't sign up to be a role model to me growing up and watching Grey's and going, huh, that's really interesting. We don't have to get into Grey's, but Grey's was the thing that like got me interested in show business and like television because I would like follow Shonda's blog where she would talk about every episode with like Betsy. I just got super granular with it. It pulled me in. I was hooked and like I would study Sandra specifically and everyone obviously, but Sandra was someone that I was just like, what's going on there? Like, I think she and I have something in common. Like, how do I take this all the way? There it is. Representation matters. Yeah, totally. She's one of the greatest to ever do it. And here you are because of Sandra O. Oh. In a way, yeah. Oh, my God, it's crazy. I saw her twice last week in different cities. And I was like, I'm being blessed right now. I was at work. It was a Wednesday at SNL, which is a very stressful day. It's before the table reading. You're sort of running around different departments being like, okay, we need this sound cue for this and blah, blah, blah. And then she was in town for doing Seth Meyers. And I just walked down the hall. I'm like so out of my head. Then I see this like presence kind of coming towards me. And then we both go, wait, what? And then we're like, hi, oh my God. And so her hosting when I was a writer, um, so I was writer for one year at SNL. And that was kind of Lauren's way of kind of giving me like a trial phase of like, let's see how he does. Let's see if he can learn the ropes and figures it out. And she hosted in the spring. And this is after I worked on the Golden Globes when she hosted with Andy Samberg. I didn't write it, but someone else wrote a sketch where, you know, she plays Kim Jong-un's translator. And they were like, we need someone to play Kim Jong-un. Who's it going to be? Oh, well, Bowen can do it. And so if it weren't for her literally getting to the place she has in her career to host SNL and then have her there predicate this whole premise of me being on screen, I feel like that was the last little like button on the test run for me to see if like I could do it, if I could hack it. And then like if it weren't for her, I feel like I wouldn't be sitting in front of you. Pretty crazy. I mean, that's amazing. And you know, you never know how much is destiny and how much is hard work and how much of whatever is meant to be. Yeah. But success is, it's a little bit of everything, right? It's a little bit of luck. It's a little bit of inspiration. It's a little bit of destiny. Yeah. But I love that story. Yeah. And anyway, I mean, this is very surreal. I'm sure you have heard this a million different times in a million different ways. But I mean, yeah, like I said, Grace was this pretty formative thing for me. It's one of those moments that I remember. I remember sitting in my basement watching Into You Like a Train. That was the first episode of Grey's that I ever watched. That was an episode of television that I was like, wow, I need to know everything about how this was made. And then just kind of really, really got into it. It's crazy how these threads keep intersecting. Crazy threads intersecting yeah. or planets being in the same orbit. Totally. And it's not even success being this thing of happenstance and hard work. It's like everything just is so unpredictable. I don't know. I am a big believer in frequency. Yes. And I'm not a scientist. 
So don't judge me here. You just play one on TV. I just play one on TV. I really subscribe to this theory, like I'm really big on frequency. And I really feel like human beings, we have a frequency, we give off a frequency, everything has a frequency. Yep. And we're like stations on the radio. Mm. And people who dialed into the same frequency, vibrate on the same frequency, end up buzzing around in the same space. Mm. And I believe that why people are in each other's orbits are because we're on similar frequency. Mm. We're all tuned into that radio station. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I feel like a frequency that is very finely tuned, let's say, engenders more of that frequency around you. Like you're kind of handing down this frequency to your kids or that you create this frequency at work or whatever, you know? I feel like sometimes it's beyond your own adjustment. This is my big belief in the world and about how the world works is that the worst thing you can make someone feel is alienated. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the thing that just plants the seed for like all this other shit to happen. I agree. Anytime you make someone feel outside of something shunned from something in any way, even if you're just trying to call someone out for like a fucked up thing they did, you're kind of not giving them the space to like grow from it if you're alienating that person's behavior for that behavior, you know? Yeah, I think politically, that's what works. Yeah. They want to divide people. Yeah. People naturally will fall into that trap. But I feel the same way. And hopefully there's a moral compass. Yes. But some people are attracted to different things. So let's pivot and talk about something that blows my mind. Yeah. People believe different things and that's okay. Uh Uh-huh. And we as human beings have to sort of navigate. That's one of our biggest challenges is navigating one another in our differences, in our different beliefs. Mm -hmm. So you were put into conversion therapy as a teenager. Yes. Gosh, I had thought I made it to the finish line of high school in terms of staying in the closet, at least when it came to family. Was out in high school by like the middle of it. And then this is senior year. I was figuring out colleges And my sister was at NYU. I had applied all over the country, got into some decent schools, had some good options. But this was the spring of my senior year. I had a chat window open. Everybody used the same computer, and there was just this chat window open that was just a little salacious, illicit, what have you. By the way, I was pretty like, any Western family would have just probably clocked this from a mile away, that my sensibilities were very specific, and someone could glean my queerness from my life, you know, whatever. I come home, there's this big sort of... I'll say Korean drama level of pathos and like suffering and just like, this can't be, this won't do, you can't be this person. Because I think it was for my parents something that was just totally foreign to them. It was something that my dad was like, we didn't have those people where I come from. And I go, well, that's not true, dad. You just didn't know about them. And that never really got through to him at the time. My mom would sort of pathologize it in a very specific way, saying that she was a doctor in China. And so she kind of appealed to that aspect of this is a deficiency. And this is going back to that filial piety thing, this like reverence, this thing that, you know, you sort of live with your whole life thinking what they say and do is supreme, is the thing that rules over everything. And so I would come home for like two weeks to them just sobbing. I'd never seen my dad cry before. My mom, I think, is very emotional, always has been. But my dad, I never saw him cry before. And so it was just coming home day after day to them just being the saddest I'd ever seen them and thinking, I did this. This was my fault. And I have to do right by this. I have to make this good. And my parents being very scientifically minded, solutions-oriented people 
did their own sort of research, misguided research, we'll say, and they found a conversion therapist in Colorado Springs. I grew up in Aurora, Colorado, suburb outside of Denver. And so Colorado Springs is like this mega church central place in Colorado. And I remember my dad handing me this printout of this guy who just did these sessions out of his office in Colorado Springs. I could just tell he was this quack. I was like, this guy is not legit. This is crazy. Like, Also probably a raging queen. Go ahead. Well, this is... <laughs> Sorry. No, but, no, no. Well, yeah. This is like the end of the story, basically. It would be like two-hour drives each way every week. And basically the ultimatum was either stay in state, live with my parents, go to college in Denver which I did not want because I was very eager to just reinvent myself, move to New York City, be, you know, a raging homosexual in New York, like without parental supervision. Or I could go to New York City where my sister was and have her sort of chaperone me in our overlapping years if I went to conversion therapy that summer. So I took the second option, drove down to Colorado Springs for about eight sessions for that summer with my dad. And those drives down were actually wonderful bonding experiences between me and my dad because we would just like put on music and just sort of take hikes or something, just like stop at gas stations and just shoot the shit or whatever. And then the terminus was always the conversion therapy, which was always like, oh, that's why we're doing this. That's right. But then what was interesting was the first four sessions were like kind of disguised as traditional talk therapy. And this guy just like asked me the questions that like any other normal social worker or background therapist would ask me. But then he, I remember on the first session was, do you want this to be a secular experience or a Christ-centered experience? And I go, well, if you're giving me those options, I feel like the agenda is always going to be from some religious dogmatic perspective and whatever. I was like, let's go with secular. But I was like, I know this guy is coming from a very hard Christian bent. It was kind of hard to not think about that. Then what would happen after the fourth session, right in the middle of that experience was he would start to make me take inventory of all the times. And this sounds crazy, but like all the times I had been attracted to a guy. And I was like, I can't log all of that. Even as a 17-year-old, I was like, that happens like a million different times a day. It's that thing of like men think about sex every three seconds, which I don't even know if it's true. But I was already at that point. I was like, I think about this all the time. What do you mean I have to talk to you and break down every time I've been attracted to a guy? The sort of circular reverse fucked up logic that they would do is anytime you've been attracted to a guy, it's been because you were physically in distress or you were mentally not in a good place, that you were feeling bad about yourself. So therefore you were attracted to someone of the same sex. And it was just the further pathologizing of this thing about me that I thought was defective, was broken. And then by the eighth session, he sort of like wants to wrap a nice bow on the whole experience. You know, we're leaving on a good note. And he's like, let me tell you a story about this guy, one of my former patients. And he starts talking in the third person. He goes, you know, this guy was driving down California, was running out of gas, had to get out at San Bernardino, went to a Denny's, and then the waiter at the Denny's was making eyes at him. And then this is when my therapist starts to switch into the first person. And he goes, and I was like, am I really going to hook up with this guy? And then he caught himself. He's like, I mean, sorry, my patient. And I was like, oh, so this happened to you very recently. Like he made it seem like it happened very recently. And then he went pale. Like this was something that he just is still dealing with. He is not in any position himself to tell me how to like fix this because he has not overcome this, quote unquote, himself. And then that's when the whole spell broke. I mean, I didn't believe in it the entire time. I kind of just like entertained it. Maybe I was like, maybe like sexuality is fluid and I can go the other way and whatever. Like maybe I'll try my hand at this in college and see, especially with my sister being like my parents sort of sentinel. I was like, I'll give this a shot. But that last session after like he told me that story about himself, I was just like, oh, this is all bullshit. And then I remember ending the session he walked me out to my dad, who was in the waiting room. 
And then my dad had asked for referrals in New York the week before. He was like, do you know anybody who would do this in New York that Bowen can see? And he was like, yeah, I'll write down names. I'll have a list for you the next session, the final session. And so this is the final session. He walks me out to my dad and he holds this pathetic little slip of paper and he goes, well, this was all I could find. And it was just this one guy who was out of like Trenton, New Jersey. And he was like, so Bowen would have to take the train. And then I was like, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. Like New Jersey transit. I'll do that every week for sure. I was like, I'm not going to fucking do that. Anyway, that's the whole experience. Did you go out to the car and say, Dad, that guy's a raging queen? <laughs> I should have. Totally I should have. He, he would have been devastated. He genuinely thought that this was going to work. Right. I kind of made him believe that it did until it kind of all came to a head when I was in college, by the end of college. And I had to sort of come out a second time, which was very bizarre. And so how are they now with it? Do they now understand that you were born this way? Yes, they do. They do. And actually, it's taken a lot of work, of course, since then, but it's been like a lot of work in like the last four years or so to just explain to them that this is pretty normal. It's a naturally occurring thing and it's happened since time immemorial, whatever. But there have been a lot of moments where I've been like, you've never asked me if I'm dating anybody. You have no interest in this aspect of my life and that feels a little hurtful. And I feel like if you are genuinely interested in what's going on with me, then this is a part of who I am. And since then, they've really sort of I think, grown and developed in that way. This is the important thing that I think has been helpful is that it was about not alienating them. It was about bringing them into this development of, well, this is a really crazy fucked up thing that we all went through together. I don't fault you for it because you were just trying to figure out how to fix this, quote unquote, because it was a problem for you. And now let's just move forward in the spirit of not icing anybody out of this and about actually encouraging you to ask me about this part of my life rather than sweep it under the rug every time I come home for Thanksgiving, you know? Yeah, what's interesting about being a parent is your ego, because what's funny is the truth is they're the ones who needed therapy. I mean, with all due respect to your parents and, you know, respect to any parent who has a gay child and is having trouble understanding rather than try to pray the gay away. Mm -hmm. You really need to just go to therapy yourself and understand that you're born this way. Mm -hmm. And as a parent, the best thing we can understand is maybe I need to do something. Maybe I need to fix something about myself. Maybe I need to look at my behavior, which is really hard to do. Oh my gosh. But it's probably the most productive thing you can do is say, maybe I need to look at the way I'm looking at this. Totally. There's a path forward there. Speaking of grays, We did this storyline on the show where there was a boy on the show who was gay Uh who wanted to come out to his parents and watched an episode with his parents about coming out. Yeah. I'm not sure which episode it was. He was a really young kid when he did the show. He's probably only 18 when he did the show. And this is years ago now. And then he came out to his parents and his parents, you know, were not accepting, but they came around to accepting him through the show and him watching the show with them and Mm -hmm. trying to show them an episode where, you know, parents weren't accepting their child and then they come around and they understand it. So that's how he came out to his parents as using the show. And then he was an actor and got to be on the show and got to be in an episode where his boyfriend was really sick. And I don't know if he was dying or what it was, but they were two characters. They were like cosplay kids. Oh, sure. So they Uh were like dressed up in the scene in the show. 
And so it was like such a crazy full circle moment. And I didn't know that story and like why we were filming one of the scenes. He was telling me about it. And I just like started bawling. And I was like, oh my God, I cannot cry right now. I'm working. (laughs) But anyway, it was a pretty amazing moment. Yeah. I mean, that's another representation anecdote that you're just like, oh my God, this is that specific power that Braze has, that television has, that media has. I'm still sort of mending those wounds in a way. Like I talk about in therapy every week. We refer back to that time of conversion therapy a lot. But I think there's there's something like so powerful in wanting to like be restorative in all aspects, whether it's the relationship with the parents or just making sure that my self-worth is being protected and healed in that way. Anyway, not to get too down and morose about it, but like I think it's all worked out. It's not down and morose at all. And this is going to sound cliche. Mm-hmm. But everything happens for a reason. Sure, Listen, sure. I'm sure you would rather not had that happen, but look at what you're doing with that experience. Oh, yeah. Hopefully, so many young people are going to listen to this. Hopefully, so many young people are going to share this episode, share it with their friends, their sisters, their brothers, whoever is in their life. Mm. And some young people are going to listen to this and know that they're okay. Yeah. And know what's right from wrong. Because we're giving you the real here. Yes. Forget about the parents who want to put you in conversion therapy. (laughs) You'll be fine. Come out, queens. Come Come out, out, queens. queens. (laughs) Do it, do it, do it. I mean, like, squirrel queens. I mean, like, I thought for a long time, I feel like in the tapestry of queerness, whatever cis gay men go through is sort of like nothing compared to like everyone else. But I feel like now there's this collective struggle again with like all this crazy legislation that it's like, oh, I guess it is as important as ever to like make sure that it's very clear what we're about and that it's not about, you know, like being an ill in society or something. It's just about making sure we're okay and that we don't traumatize a whole generation of queer kids coming up. I'm going to say it again. Why are you that fucking mad? Why do you care? If you're not gay, what the fuck do you care who I love? Why? Yeah. These politicians... There is no reason for them to be so angry. And we know a ton of these conversion therapists have come out as gay. Right, exactly. We know they have. So you got to look at who's saying what. Uh Look at where it's coming from. I always say to my kids, where is it coming from? If it's coming from a cartoon, which is a conversation (laughs) I have with my kids all the time. These cartoons say some crazy things. And then my kids repeat them. And I'm like, that's a cartoon. Like, please don't repeat that. Sure, sure. But it's like, look at where it's coming from. If that person looks happy, fulfilled, joyful, living their best life maybe yeah but that's not what i see sure and i also think that this whole transgender acknowledgement issue has just got them all twisted up they don't know how to process it it's just beyond their computation like there's a ton of fear around it why you gotta ask yourself why are they so confused by it Mm -hmm. why are they clinging on to their beliefs. Yeah. If it doesn't affect you, right. if you're not gay and you're not transgender or non-binary or any of the other Just ways that people you. identify, yeah, yeah. I'm a straight woman and I don't really care what people want to do. Sure. Why would that make me angry? So the anger has to be coming from somewhere. Totally. I think they sort of drum up the fear to an extent that makes them feel victimized, that they're convinced that it is affecting them. I feel like the longer I sort of do this, the less I'm like, woe is me, woe is me. I'm way more chill than I was like 10 years ago. I feel like I'm settling into like the person I am. I guess this is just by virtue of turning 30 or something. Yeah, well, when you get older, you start to realize, oh, wait, who's that in the mirror? 
a handsome guy. Oh, who's that in the mirror? I'm not quite there yet. A talented guy. Who's that in the mirror? A nice guy. I mean, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Going back and watching the show has been massive for me because I'm like, what the fuck was I worried about? Oh, yeah. There were so many voices in my head, not even in my head. Right. There was outside voices. And this was even pre-social media telling me you're too skinny. Wow. You're not a good actor. This one's better than you. This one's prettier than you. When you're in the public eye, there's so many people telling you things uh-huh. that it's much easier to get down on yourself. Of course. But the best thing you can do, which has got to be super hard for young people now because there's so much public criticism and it's so noisy out there. Yeah. I don't know how these kids do it. I feel for them. But it's like the goal is to try to get to the place where that noise doesn't matter. And I don't know how you get to that place because I'm just getting to it now and I'm 50. Really? And, you know, it's something to navigate in the public eye. But I think get your confidence, define yourself through things you're good at. Exactly. Okay, there's this book I think you would like called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. And she talks about the attention economy. I think our attention is being so pulled in millions of directions that you have to just kind of pay attention to yourself and a lot of time for that. And like her whole way into this conversation is she's a bird watcher. So she talks about birds all the time. But she's like, that's like an example of doing something for yourself that just grounds you in a very site-specific way that you know where you are. It's like going on a hike. It's like go to Griffith, go to Runyon, whatever, just so you know exactly where you are, what you're doing. Have a sense of material place with your surroundings so that you're not like constantly living on something that's being mediated through a screen, you know? Right. Like to spend time in nature, right? Like just being still. Friends of mine have this farm and they have these like cutest videos of their animals on their farm. And they posted this like really nice video of their cats and their chickens and like the cat's just like sitting and then she gets up and she walks and then she licks the other cat on the face. Mm. And it's just like, even if you can't get in nature, like look for nature on Instagram. Sure, Animals in their natural habitat are so like pure and We're so tainted by all of our stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's why people love dogs, because dogs, like, aren't tainted by any stuff. Exactly. There's an essence to them that is just, like, life in general. Whatever. We're getting super, like, woo-woo maybe, but, like, yeah, I love (laughs) it. they just want to be happy. Yeah. Animals want to be happy, right? Like, animals don't walk around pissed off. Totally. Yeah. But you're describing me. I'm walking around just, like mad at things. I don't know. No, do you? You do? Well, I mean, like, I think I'm just, like, irritable because I'm tired. My one complaint in life right now is that I'm just tired. But I think that's just, like, every working actor, maybe. Yeah, could be. Could be. How many jobs are you doing right now? There was a time when I was doing, like, three or four at the same time, and that really got... Between SNL and then on the hiatuses from SNL, doing this other job that was just, like, a totally different skill set, and then going back to SNL, where you're just, like, reading off cue cards, pitching to the rafters, playing, like, a kooky character... Than having to go do like a single cam thing on the week's off. It's very jarring. That's a very specific experience. Yeah. I've been so blessed with the show and the fan base on the show to be able to have such a stable situation and not have to worry about going to do all that. I mean, a lot of people want to go do that. Right. It's super fun and exciting when you're young. 
And then there's something about it that just gets... Wrote, like repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot of stress. It gets to be too much. So try to enjoy this time. (laughs) You will get burnt out for real and be like, fuck that. I want to write books. Totally. I mean, wow. I mean, you just like fully unloaded all of this holistic career advice. But then the whole time you were talking, I was listening, obviously, but I was also thinking like, you've done something so remarkable in the industry, which is to like, understand that so well, all those weird little forces at play and to be like, I know what I like, I know what's going to keep me in one place and make sure I'm taken care of. And then I have a groovy life for me and my kids and my family. My friends and I talk about this all the time. We talk about you on my podcast. We always talk about you. Oh my God, I have to listen. No, and then we, and then I, I, my ego loves that. What do you, do oh, you I, see I, my I, peacock feathers? Right there now? you go. They're fanned out. But what we always quote is because it's truly an iconic line and it's like a moment of allyship where you go, I'm not seeing enough color. But it's like we constantly quote that. And like my friend Matt adds a little sauce to it. He goes, I'm not seeing enough color because it's a truly such an incredible moment. And like I think generationally, like people like my age think about that moment all the time. And it cuts to Gabrielle nodding. It's just wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad that moment got as much attention as it deserved. Take these stories for what they are meant to be, which is lessons in how to apply them to your everyday life. Yeah. And how to walk into situations with confidence. And like Bowen said, not let someone's critique of you define the experience. Because you can apply this whether you're a nurse, mm-hmm. whether you're a school teacher. Just literally up and down the class chain. You can apply these lessons to anything because it's all human interaction and human behavior. Yeah. You're so fun. You're so fun. This is a dream come true, Alan. Thank you so much for having me. Truly an honor. What day of November is your birthday? Sixth. Oh, I'm the 10th. You're the 10th? Yes. Great. If you're not in New York, we have to do birthday celebrations. We got to do birthday bash. We got to. Yeah. For sure. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. 